0: Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Tani Nandini Islam. Tani is the author of Bright Lines, a 2015 coming-of-age novel that spans eras and continents, from Brooklyn to Bangladesh. Bright Lines was a finalist for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize and the Edmund White LGBTQ Debut Fiction Award. Tani's writing has also appeared in L.com, Open City, and Gawker. This is actually my second time speaking with Tani. I first interviewed her a couple years ago for Food & Wine FWX about High Wildflower Botanica, which is the small batch perfume, candle, and skincare line that she runs in addition to writing. I was struck then by how intentional Tani was, how much she prioritized ritual, meditation, and, though this word gets overused, self-care. Now that we were going to talk about writing— I was excited to hear how those principles guide her creative life. Tani didn't disappoint. We spoke while she was on a one-woman writing retreat in the California desert. And a quick heads up here that there is a little bit of background noise in this audio, so thanks for your patience. True to our first conversation, we talked a lot about taking care of yourself as a writer, exfoliating the fear out of your mind, giving yourself permission, and claiming authority as a voice of your culture.
1: When I decided that this was an idea that I couldn't let go of, that I could not shake, that I couldn't stop thinking about, that's when I really felt like I was the writer.
0: Can you start by talking about, I know you're kind of living like a dream Instagram trip right now and you've been writing in the desert for weeks. Can you tell everybody like what you're up to?
1: So I run a business in addition to being a writer, and by the end of holiday season, I felt completely exhausted and needed to kind of take stock of myself as a writer again. So I kind of put out into the universe that I needed to take a break from New York, living in the city, and one of my writer friends, uh, Leila Lalami, who wrote The Moors Account, Um, you know, kind of connected with me. And I ended up house-sitting for her in California. And it was one of those moments of kismet because I wanted to work on my book in a place that's completely different from where the book takes place. And getting away from New York is always a part of my process. So I think part of being in the desert is that there's just complete absence of the life that I know. And, you know, it's very desolate and also culturally very different from the landscape of the city and the things that kind of inspire me as a writer.
0: I love that idea of taking stock of yourself as a writer. Was part of it the the run of the first novel making you feel like it was time to do that? That's sort of where do I go next feeling? Well,
1: you know, what's funny, um, and I think a lot of writers share this with me. I started the book that I'm working on now about five years ago. Oh, so okay. I've had these ideas that I've been very uh, stuck on. And what just happened in the last couple of weeks is that I let go of hundreds of pages that I've written here and there, like little snippets that have kind of added up to not quite the book, but I needed to get that out of the way in the last five years. So this book has been percolating for several years at this point. So now I'm just like letting myself go into the story, into the characters, getting to know them. Because the last book, you know, I worked on that for 10 years, which is pretty common, I think, for the first one. And you don't really have anyone expecting anything of you. It can be whatever you want. And I think for this one, not only did I have the expectations I put on myself and maybe that others have put on me from the first book uh, into this process, I also realized that some of the things I've been stuck inside of ideas that I thought were intrinsic to this book are not actually that important and need to be cut out so I can free myself to work on it. Um, So I think it was much more of a psychological thing rather than, you know, what was expected of me after the last book. But I think with Bright Lines, I Got to kind of have this like dream debut um, for me because I just wanted it to be a book that resonated in New York and, you know, with people who can get something out of the book that I wanted when I was, you know, reading fiction as a young person, which I've gotten a lot of feedback for. So I think this new book is totally different from that process.
0: I struggle with this myself, this idea of making space for better progress, like cling to to words I've written, just sometimes conceptually as a word count, like as a number of words you've gotten done in a day. You know, I think it can be so hard to let go.
1: Yes, yes. And I think for me, um, I had some historical characters in there. And uh, they were kind of making me stuck because I felt this responsibility to history and what really happened, and the point of fiction is to make up what happened. you know, so I think basing my book on people that have inspired it in history is a little bit more liberating than actually writing historical fiction um about a person who existed.
0: Are you ready to talk at all about what it 's about yet Oh yeah,
1: um well it's evolving um the kernel of it started as a book that um, explores the life of the oldest woman on earth. And her great granddaughter is a perfumer and her great grandson. Um, and they're not related by blood, but through marriage, <laughs> they're working um, on a film together of her life. So that was kind of the framing premise. And she is this fascinating person who lives on an imaginary island off the coast of Manhattan and grows up there as you know a maid. Um, in the 1950s, and kind of lives this really incredible life where she becomes a film actress in Mexico. You know, marries seven different times, like has this like very um, romantic, picturesque type of life. And it goes through not only her life, but the life of her daughters, who are twins, one of whom dies, and then her great granddaughter. So it's three generations of this one family told through the eyes of the women and there's a lot of uh things that i'm interested in the book like there's a murder mystery in there and historical kind of fictive landscape taking america from 1940s to you know the future as i'm imagining it and also there's this one lover that kind of persists in her life who's this Bangladeshi seaman who um decides to abandon the ship that he's on and it is something that kind of is a consistent relationship in her life. This one Bangladeshi character Mm -hmm. who uh, knows her before the revolution, um, as it's happening, you know, in India, the partition of India through the liberation of Bangladesh. So kind of is a historical backdrop that she follows as well. So it's like a lot of different things. I mean, I like to think of a million different ideas as I'm writing, but Those are some of the things that I'm working through right now. But mostly it's about women who dealt with abandonment and are kind of creating the projected version of themselves that history has not allowed them or afforded them to have because they're women of color and, you know, working class women who haven't been afforded that.
0: And so you were working on that even while you were working on Bright Lines?
1: Um, I would say that it's something that I've been flirting with for sure. years and working on in little snippets. And honestly, it's been this locked box that I haven't been able to open. And I finally let myself, and you know, I found the key and I'm going in there <laughs> and it's finally opened itself up for me. Cause I think, you know, like sometimes you don't start a book in the right place. You know, you don't know what the beginning is and you don't know which character is supposed to guide you and you don't know how the voice sounds. And these are all uh, technical craft issues that you kind of explore through stumbling.
0: Jumping back a bit to the origins of Bright Lines, um, do you want to talk about just kind of how that got started? And I know you got your MFA from Brooklyn College. You know, did you go into that program with this as your project?
1: Yeah, I definitely always knew I wanted to write a book ever since I was probably five or six years old. So that's something that. Was just not a matter of if I can do it. It was just a matter of when. And I think the desire to work on the novel really happened when I was working in New Delhi, and I got this fellowship through the American India Foundation. And they have the Service Corps fellowship, and you're put in a nonprofit for a year. And you know, I don't think I excelled in working at that nonprofit. I mean. I was 24 and living in India, so there's a lot to explore. So, you know, besides not being so great of a volunteer at the nonprofit, I took a lot of trips. And one of the first trips I took was to Kashmir. And, you know, Kashmir is such a gorgeous place, but it's very, very, very fraught with tension and military presence and, you know, Communalist kind of fracturing between Muslim and, and Hindu, you know, populations in Kashmir, which is mostly Muslim, but is kind of contested land between India and Pakistan. So I think you know, being in that environment during Ramadan, there's nothing to do except eat food, stay at home, uh, and work. And we got in this hotel that was lovely, and I just started writing something one night and caught the fever that you get and was hypnotized by this idea that I had and worked until seven in the morning. And to me, like, that's always a great writing night. You know, if I work from 11 PM to 7 AM, that's like my ideal hours of operation. So I wrote this like fever dream of a chapter and it felt like the beginning of something, you know, and I always think of it as like, kind of like every writer who starts a book kind of has this idea that becomes more and more realized. And then finally there's like a big bang moment and you're just like, I'm doing it. I'm fucking doing it. And I decided then that I'm doing it. And I, you know, applied to a few MFA's applied to, you know, Brooklyn college, Hunter college, just different schools in New York. And the day that I got this email from Michael Cunningham being like, we'd love to accept you into the program. I was like, Oh my gosh. Hell yes. I mean, I love that the hours. I love anything right. he writes. And I just right. thought that it would be an affordable, cool way to write this Brooklyn book that I wanted to write. And it ended up being the best decision ever. Um, so I, I don't know. I think people always have this idea of MFA versus NYC. And I had MFA in NYC. And it was <laughs> both. You know, I worked the entire time I did my MFA and I also just devoted myself to writing this book um, that drew a lot of inspiration from the world that I was living in.
0: And I just want to clarify for listeners that might not be familiar with the book, it it centers on a family whose background as yours is Bangladeshi. Did you grow up in New York? I grew up
1: in a suburb outside of the city. And the city was where my family went to visit their other family. So my childhood Basically, I was born in Illinois, moved to Alabama, Texas, Missouri, and then we came to New York when I was nine years old. So I've been in New York. I'm 34 now. So I've been in New York for a very long time. Um, But I moved to the city in 2004. So it's kind of one of those things that the events in Bright Lines happens in the time period around when I moved to the city. Um, which is a few years after 9-11 and when I started working with young people. I mean, I worked in nonprofit as a teaching artist for 10 years before I decided I was going to call myself a writer and try to get the book published. So I didn't really, um, I don't know, I never stopped working in those spaces. And even now, you know, when you think about what the book is about, it's about this Bangladeshi family. The father is an apothecary who has a shop in Atlantic Avenue, which is a very... A uh, busy thoroughfare um, in Brooklyn that has a lot of Muslim diasporic shops, you know, selling Islamic right. paraphernalia and incense and oils. And I, I just wanted to have something that felt very rooted in that part of Brooklyn because I was living near there um, and also I was working with young people. So I think the young girls in the book who have their own coming of age while the dad is having his coming of age, they represent that kind of engagement with youth and, you know, teenagers, which I, have always found to be such a fascinating age. But I think when you're dealing with teenagers who are going through uh, coming of age and figuring out their sexuality, figuring out their voice, rebelling against their parents, I think that's really fascinating stuff because that reflects kind of what I went through. Um, Is it an autobiography? No, but it's something that really does go into the big themes that I wanted to have my first novel explore, you know, coming of age in this sort of like, take on the buildings, Roman, but through these characters that we haven't yet seen in fiction because they are Bangladeshi characters who represent a qu- continuum of sexualities um, from queer and trans identities. And I wanted to do that in a, in a fictive landscape.
0: And I was interested to talk to you about writing about your culture because I write a lot about where I'm from, which is Appalachia, um, which is a region that is often not represented or misrepresented or, you know, stereotyped very easily. And and I feel this kind of push and pull writing about it in which, you know, in one sense, I I really want to be the voice that gives those stories and gives them correctly. And then on the other hand, I kind of sometimes, I almost resent the need that I feel like it sometimes forces me to like justify ourselves or like explain ourselves to other people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I wondered if that was a tension that you worked with at all.
1: You know, I think I understand that completely, but I think that the resentment um, happens if we operate on a premise of this is just a stereotypical rendering of what's expected of me. And I think that the stories you tell about Appalachia and the stories I'm telling about Bangladesh, I mean, there's just an infinite amount of stories. And I think that's part of the fallacy of publishing and a white supremacist outlook on whose voices are allowed to come to the table because it's often one person representing that one group, right. right? That is allowed to shine. And I think that's horrible. You know, I'm actually very good friends with other Bangladeshi writers in the diaspora. Um, there's some writers who are doing amazing work. Um, I'm Tamima Anam, Abir Hook. I mean, these are people who not only are my friends within a, built with in terms of you know exchanging love and ideas and stuff but i think it's also important to realize we are a cohesive community of different voices who have a different point of view i mean that's the beauty of fiction it is our individual imprint on this infinite amount of knowledge and information that we've had for eons of human history
0: love the way that you write about New York and Bright Lines. I wonder how you can how you kind of excavate those details from your own lived experience where I think they can just feel so embedded and kind of just like wallpaper. Do you know what I mean?
1: Well, you know, it's funny. I remember one of my first readers, first readers of the first iteration of Bright Lines. But I think it was even before I just I put it in Queens for like a one version of the book because I was (laughs) Queens is more Bangladeshi, this is more authentic. And I was like, wait. And he called my book a Frankenstein, and I was so hurt. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you asshole, I'm so mad at you. But he was totally right, and I knew he was right. And I That's what hurts my the most when you know was, they're right. Yeah, it's the worst. So I realized it was because I was trying to do this thing in Queens, and I actually don't really like Queens as much as I like. Them and that's always been the case ever since I was a kid so I it's not any beef hipster beef or anything like that it's it's legitimately just I never felt really myself in in Queens so I decided to switch the narrative over to Brooklyn and immediately place became so alive because what's wonderful about New York unlike any city especially here in California is that it's so walkable and each block becomes another block, which becomes another neighborhood, which becomes, you know, it's just expansive. And and I wanted to begin the novel with this walk that Anwar takes from the shop in Atlantic Avenue to his home in Clinton Hill, which is a walk I've done many times. But every little thing that you notice, you know, the boys playing dominoes on the corner, the bodegas, the 99 cent store, the, you know, people in the mosque who are milling outside. I mean, these are all details that I've noticed in different parts of my experience in in Brooklyn. That's what fiction can do for us is that it brings alive these moments that are already there under the surface, but then they're put into words and then they're given more gravity, more meaning, and they resonate. So I think for people that are from New York, Uh, It especially resonates. But then for a reader who's not from New York, who has no idea what I'm talking about, who doesn't know any Bangladeshi people, who doesn't know any Muslim immigrant characters through what they've read, um, it becomes especially alive because it is so detailed um, and place is such a factor. Even as a perfumer, you know, place is what inspires my olfactory kind of creations, too. I'm just really invested in place. I think a lot of the book reflects that dedication to imagining place because that's where my characters have become who they are.
0: And when you were writing Bangladesh, um I was so struck by when the family takes the trip back or you know back for some of them the just like the complete range of experience and relationship to one's culture that you fit into that entire visit across the Members of that family, you know, the young girls are kind of like, oh, that's gross, or those, you know, these rules are gross, and that sort of thing. And then, you know, it's very reverential in other t- in other cases. And and I wondered if that was all stuff that you, you know, sometimes we we don't articulate how we feel about these things until we kind of can put them onto fictional separate people and get a little distance from them.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think visits to Bangladesh have ranged from that's so gross to wow, this is inspiring, and these are my people, and this is what I'm cut from, this cloth that's, you know, part of humanity is mine, and, you know, it goes between those two things so viscerally when you're an outsider, and I've actually gotten feedback from Bangladeshi men, not women, um, that it feels very much like tourist, you know, kind of outsider fiction, and I've pretty much been like, yeah, dude, it is, <laughs> like, I'm not from there, so it's never going to be, like, this authentic experience from a Bangladeshi's point of view it's definitely from the point of view of the immigrant or second generation characters
0: right and, and that it, goes back to your point about you know what we were discussing a minute ago like you know you get that gets to be a valid narrative that's that's okay that's your story and that's your claim to the culture and it doesn't have to be the one or the defining or the you know thing that looks like everybody else's
1: Absolutely, and you know I talk about this with my South Asian American writer friends, you know, if we write about rape or we write about incest or we write about you know any of these things that no one wants to talk about that are happening rampantly worldwide, um a lot of feedback from our community will be like, "Oh my God, you're making us look bad. Why are you doing that?" you know so I think those are some of the things that i uh definitely have heard, but I think at the same time, I went there. In March of 2014, just before my final revisions were due, because I knew I needed to make those scenes more alive. I mean, the last trip I had taken to Bangladesh was 2007 when I was living in Delhi, um, working on the book. So, I I mean, it's like the beginning of the book. I'd started and it was in South Asia. But then I knew I needed to reconnect to South Asia and go to the places where I was writing about. Because my family's from the city and villages close to the city, but they're not from the north and the south of the country. The north of the country country on the border of India and the south of the country in the oceans are where there was a lot of Sufi influence, a lot of trade, a lot of important historical moments uh, for the country. And people are more religious in those parts of the country as well. And they also have the most beautiful landscapes in the country. So it's like these different things that I could not know unless I went there one more time. And I think that seeing it as an outsider, it gives you this license to take copious notes on things you don't know. So I was just asking every chance I got, like, what tree is this? Where is this mountain? What does this mean? Like, what is this? What is this? And it kind of created a bunch of images to work with. Um, And then as a writer, you're always looking for serendipity. So I think for me, part of that was visiting in March and March is the month where the war in Bangladesh started in 1971. So it felt like almost this parallel experience of what I was exploring in the flashback chapters of the war with like, what does the world in Bangladesh look like during this month? So it was very, it was very good for me to, to get those details that you can't really get unless you're, you're there. Um, so you know, I think I give historical fiction a lot of props because it's just so, so imagined. And I think for me, I need to jumpstart my imagination with a little bit of going to do a research trip, going into the the place um, to to really make it come alive.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's where uh, when I realized that my my strongest skill as a journalist was observing. I think that's that's mm-hmm. when my writing improved a lot. <laughs> Oh, way
1: more, right? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. It's just incomparable to just thinking about it in your mind.
0: I wanted to go back to a thing that you said a moment ago when you talked about the book uh, and used the phrase, when I decided to call myself a writer. And I wonder if you can talk about that moment. Because, you know, like we said, we both had been wanting to write books since we were little kids. But I feel like there is, you know, speaking personally, for me, there is this weird like, do I get to say that kind of attitude. I and I feel like you really do I have get to say that. I think you have to really grow into it. Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, I I wonder about the shame about calling oneself a writer. <laughs> so much shame involved, but I think there's a mul- It's multiple things. I mean, it's like, if you're not a published novelist or journalist, you're not a writer. If you're not making any money doing writing, you're not a writer. I mean, there's so many like caveats, right? If you're not a professor of writing, you're not a writer. I mean, whatever. So I think... To me, it was like I wasn't living in any way as a writer. I'm still not living as a writer. I'm living as a businesswoman. So I'm not really sure that I, by the terms that I just described, would be able to call myself a writer. But I think, you know, when I decided that this was an idea in terms of Bright Lines um, that I couldn't let go of, that I could not shake, that I couldn't stop thinking about, that I had to keep working on until it was done. That's when I really felt like I was a writer. And I think that that kind of hunger to work towards something, um, whether fictive or journalistic or whatever, I mean, that really is what makes a writer. That moment for me when I realized Bright Lines was becoming more and more something that was taking over my mind. And, you know, give it, being in an MFA program, it kind of gave me permission to call myself a writer because here I was learning from, you know, published, famous writers. And I think Those are all things that people seek when they're working on something. But I think, you know, someone who's publishing their own work on Kindle, on Amazon, whatever, you're a writer. Like, it's not this hierarchy of what is a real writer versus what's not a writer.
0: Let's jump over to High Wildflower, which Mm. uh, is your small batch candle and perfume line. And if I remember correctly, uh, grew out of Bright Lines. Is that true?
1: Um, I think that's like the neat story that, uh, is easy to kind of say because I started it right after I handed in my revisions, but, um, it's not like I was thinking about it at all. You know, I kind of was working in nonprofit. I got a book deal and I quit that job to work as a brand manager, at this like ill-fated startup and I got fired and I was laid off. So this is like a life crisis that happened and I could not find work for two years. It was crazy. Like I just didn't want to work in nonprofit again because I knew it would take up too much of my time and anything that was kind of in media, like you need to have internships and experiences that show that you're someone who can do it. So I really felt like at a loss. And finally, as I finished my revisions, this whole, I, you know, the book kind of ends with this imagery of the wild or whatever. And I, loosely. I mean, for anyone who hasn't read it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I don't know what it was. I might've been high or something. (laughs) I was like, hi, wildflower. That's such a cute name. It started as a blog. So It was totally a blog and my sister and I were making content and I knew I wanted to have a shop and I was reading all these books about how to make your blog make money. And it was like really hilarious because I was actually, I mean, I interviewed Ava DuVernay for the blog, so I was doing cool stuff, but I wasn't taking it seriously because I just don't take things seriously enough. And I was like, you know what, this blog shit is going to be really hard to grow and make Money off of this seems like kind of a, a lie that I was told by all these books I ordered on Etsy or whatever. So I decided to start making some skincare stuff because I did a lot of research for Bright Lines, which isn't necessarily in the book, but it's like just in my brain. You know, I had collected all these oils and, you know, the new book, There's a Perfumer. So I was just already thinking of all this different stuff that I wanted to do. So I started collecting and buying all these oils um, from around the world. I mean, I have like at least 500 like materials, aroma chemicals and essential oils and resins and absolutes. So it just like kind of became this obsession. I was like building a library. I'm such a hoarder collector type. And I was like, I got to do something with this stuff. So I taught myself how to make a bunch of things, did a craft fair, made like 500 bucks, which was like, whoa, this is crazy. Like I made this stuff and made money off of it. And then it just grew from there. You know, I'm lucky to live in a neighborhood in, in Brooklyn where you can go to a store, send them some stuff and they'll be like, okay, we'll carry it. You know, it's like made in Brooklyn, whatever. And that just started to happen more and more and more. Um, and now it's like, we're, we're meeting me and a couple of people who helped me. It's like, we're in 60 stores still figuring it out. You know, it just kind of grew. It was very, um, much a mix of just random. Okay. I can do this with a business acumen that I always wanted to cultivate, but never really gave myself the permission to do so I think you know it is connected to writing in one way but it's really its own thing it's like the part of me that is like an entrepreneur
0: it must also be really satisfying to sort of be dealing mentally with writing problems and you know wondering what you're going to do to fix this plot situation or how this character is going to grow and what you're going to discover in this draft and all this kind of really abstract heavy stuff and then just go work with your hands
1: yeah, yeah, I was in the beginning. I think now oh, I want other people's hands to make it. <laughs> I'm like, oh, these hands don't want to pour another candle for the rest of my life.
0: so uh for listeners I actually interviewed you a couple years ago for the website fwx I was really struck then by how intentional you are and just kind of this deep sense of like ritual and awareness and nourishment and you know these 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 ideas that you let kind of guide you in ways that I think we can get very scattered and forget to be guided by so I wanted to to see if you could talk a little bit about how that kind of commitment appears in your writing life.
1: Um, so I bought this journal. I'm a big journal person. Like I think, I mean, I'm sure every writer has a journal, but like, it's all about the color and the size and no lines and all this stuff. So before this California trip, I got this beautiful, like pinkish mauve cloth journal with no lines in the paper. And I was like, this is going to be thing that I am going to write in."
0: Did you just and see it I, and it like called to you?
1: It could call to me,
0: and usually, like I would go for like
1: the teal or the blue or you know some turquoise color, whatever. But I was like, no, this is pink. And something about California and going and everything is very pink. It's very like heart chakra, whatever. I'm, I'm very into all the things, you know. I also, I you know, writing is so much about working with your hands and stuff. So I have all these like different stone rings that I wear, like, turquoise, amethyst, whatever. I'm literally, like, that person that will, like, take everything out of the, like, new age hat and, like, try it on. I do tarot cards, stones, crystals, I also do tarot cards, and
0: I do have a stone on my desk, so you're totally fine. You're in good company. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it's like anything. So um, on this trip, I kind of broke out of this – Imprisonment of the computer. And I, I, you know, it's one of those things where you write for the internet and you're just so used to starting on computer. Like, you very rarely, I, at least for me, like I'll take a few notes on a notebook, but then I'm like jumping onto the computer and I think through the computer. And I was reading interviews with a bunch of different writers Toni Morrison, Lauren Groff, you know, just like just getting inspiration from people who are out there who are doing amazing work. And I was like, shit, you know, I haven't handwritten anything in a creative way, except for writing the names of my characters. Like I just it literally would sit in front of my thing, but I was so busy with work, I would just write the name of the character and nothing else after that. I was like, I don't have any other ideas and thoughts after this. But something about handwriting became the first two weeks of this trip. I just started writing by hand, the book by hand. And until I got to like 60, 70 pages of just handwritten book. And it was like all these connections and familial relationships and historical events and all this stuff started to come alive because I gave myself permission to handwrite six, seven hours per day. And that's a luxury. I I don't even think that's possible for most people unless they go away like this or do a retreat or go on vacation. So for me, it became all about How does the pen and the paper become my way of imagining this world? And then just this past week, I finally got the courage to sit down in front of the computer and it was like pure flow because I had prepped myself and exfoliated all the like fear out of my mind and made myself aware of the story that I was trying to tell, the characters I was trying to create and the connections between them that I wanted to explore. I realize that it probably feels like the first time you've ever written anything. Every time you write a book and again, writer friends of mine who have written two, three books will say that. Is it like starting the same shit again from scratch? Like you're just learning the new ins and outs of this book and, and kind of letting it manifest as it will. And it's scary. It's always scary. And you know, the pitfalls. So you're going to fuck up and you're going to be like, Oh my God, I wrote, 100 pages for nothing. And this summer, I'd gone to Hawaii and tried to do a vacation because I hadn't taken a vacation since my book came out. And since I started High Wildflower, and I just went by myself for a few weeks. And I wrote. And now being here, I'm like, Oh, my God, I'm not going to use any of the stuff that I wrote in Hawaii, except for like five sentences. And it's crazy. Like, it's crazy to realize that. But it doesn't matter because I had to go through that to make way for what I think the true story is and probably just talk to me in six months. Maybe a lot of the stuff I'm writing now won't make it in. But I just realized a lot of what I've worked on in the last five years won't actually be in the book. It was just assessing the mountain and starting the climb.
0: I think that's really powerful. And I think you don't even know. You know, maybe even if the stuff does survive, it might not even survive in the sentence form that it currently is. And now it might just like inspire this other thing. And you kind of just you have to let go and just accept what's going to happen.
1: Yep, exactly. It's, It's such a leap of faith. And it's the same permission that you get yourself, give yourself when you're calling yourself a writer. It's like, I just, there's no reason to tell any story If you think about it rationally, there's a reason to like look for food and look for a house and look for work, you know. But I think when you're talking about stories um, and, you know, I'm one of those people that's like really open to different experiences, psychedelics, marijuana. I mean, this is in my writing, too. It's just like I feel like those experiences tell us that we need to find our sliver in this world that is unique and completely original. And our own. And it doesn't really matter, but it's everything too, because it's like the microcosm of the universe in your one rendering of the experience that's the human experience. So I kind of like go back to these, you know, pivotal experiences I've had in my life, you know, and I read all the like Hunter S. Thompson and, you know, Aldous Huxley and all these white men who have written about these transformative spiritual psychedelic experiences. And I'm like, how powerful would it be? do that exploration as a woman of color living in the world that we live in like I think that those are things that I like grapple with and it just feels huge and gigantic and I think part of what's scary is that I give myself permission but I don't know if anyone will read it and if anyone cares and that's when you have to kind of be like it doesn't matter you know I'm just gonna do it I'm just gonna go for it and hope and pray that people love it you know
0: that's like a maxim you hear all the time and you kind of can't hear it until you're ready to hear it that like it really doesn't matter
1: not at all it doesn't
0: (laughs) can you talk a bit about uh your writing routine I know this this trip sounds a little out of the ordinary but just maybe kind of what your dream writing situation is and then of course with the business how you're squeezing work in
1: so I think for me um my I think we talked about this a bit uh you know I wake up and I have my like coffee, I go to the local, like around the corner coffee shop that's run by a bunch of Australian kids in Brooklyn and, you know, have my like morning chat. And then I just sit at my journal and I try to get work done. If I'm thinking about high wildflower, it's very hard to focus. But, um, my ideal scenario is I start immediately journaling in the cafe, just because it's nice to have that, like, I'm not being a weird alien stuck in my house looking like a slob. Like, I actually get dressed and, like, put on makeup. And it's funny. I just, like, video chatted with my parents, and they were like, oh, you look nice. Like, they were so Because <laughs> <surprised. laughs> I, like, usually look like such a slob when I'm at home writing because I'm not too fancy to, like, go back to my parents' basement and just, like, work. Like, I'm totally – I think all writers do that, even when they're in their 50s or 60s or, like – mom, can I like crash your house? Like, work on my book? Cause I'm a loser. Um, so I think, you know, for them, they're like, wow, you look really cute. I was like, yeah, like I have to pretend it's a real job.
0: This is making me feel okay about
1: today. Yeah. Like I have nothing planned except this and I'm not making any money off this yet. So, so I just like, I go back to my house when I'm done, being in the cafe and the gentrification gets to be too much. <laughs> like I need to get away, so I go back and then I just sit at the computer and start working until you know three o'clock and I try to divvy up my days between writing days and high wildflower days, but I think I might try to change that and have more productive writing days in a shorter amount of time um or do what I feel most comfortable with, which is writing from 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. and then going to sleep until 12 a.m. It's winter. There's no sun like to have. Right, so, right. what the hell do I care? <laughs> like, my vitamin D will come through, you know, the pills that I take. <laughs> so, I'm very, like, I'm feeling really excited about, um, fit, like, filling with the routine. But the routine is always, again, starting with the handwriting and then going to the computer at my house. My house is where I write, I don't need to be anywhere else maybe jump starting it happens when I travel, but I don't need a cafe or a co-working space. And for High Wildflower, you know, I kind of have set up my business that it's able to run itself a little bit more besides, you know, getting new accounts and, you know, interacting with my customers on email or whatever. Um, I kind of feel like the more it can be automated and people can handle shipping for me and all this stuff, the more freedom I can have to just be a writer. That's the dream. I mean, the dream is to kind of grow the company to really sustain the life of myself and my family. So I think those days required me to just work on that. You know, it's like when I'm really focused on the business. So I let myself do both, you know, and it's, it's, I'm lucky in the week if I have two or three days where I'm actually working on the book. But now that I've taken this trip, you know, my goal is to have another draft finished by April. So I think it's going to be more writing days um, and less studio time and hiring people to help me to to make it happen. It's just like getting help when you need it. Right. You know? Investing. Investing. And I think that's what people do when they hire a babysitter or a nanny or they, you know, get their partner to like handle like the workload. And if you're, you know, someone who has to work five jobs, it's like you get part time work. So you don't have to have one job that like takes all your time like you make it work and you get help in the ways that you can to be a writer my best time of day for writing is probably in the evening but my best time for revision is definitely during the day so they're just two different hats
0: so your first draft are you just kind of pushing toward the end who cares what it looks like or are you an editing as you go type oh gosh i <laughs>
1: First of all, I never finished the first draft of this book because I changed, I was like, er! and like turned around, <laughs> like ran back to the beginning. So yeah, the first draft was half a draft and I got some feedback um, from people and they liked the premise, but they were kind of like, uh, oh, I just feel like you're not emotionally giving us enough. And they're like, Brightlines had characters that were really like people that we can connect to. And this is just like, I'm not feeling it. And I, again, was crushed (laughs) and immobilized. And so I, and and I'm in therapy, obviously. I think everyone should
0: be in therapy, but my
1: therapist was like, well, maybe, you know, you're not giving yourself permission not to do this right now because you're working on your business and you're judging a contest and like, you're really busy and you're pretending that you can actually work on this when you can't. And I totally just humbly accepted that. I was like, honestly. This a shit, and even though I went to Hawaii, there was so much again keeping it stuck because I had a few historical figures and events and this timeline that I had to adhere to, and it was just like creating this scenario where the historical characters were not that interesting, but they were sucking out all the life of the characters who are supposed to be the center Mm -hmm. of the book who are not interesting at all. whatever oxygen they could have had was being sucked out by people who have lived and died already. So anyway, I just like came to Joshua tree and was like, you know what? I need to cut out these things that I thought were inherently a part of the story. And the minute I gave myself again, permission to do that, it just opened it up to let these characters be who they actually are. So I think, you know, uh, again, it's like, there's no way to really know what your book is going to be about. But I think it's important to stop if you have a feeling that it's not right. I I do. I'm not like go all the way and then figure it out. Like I just don't have time and I have the urgency that I think women my age have, which is like, you know, I'm not having babies, but I'm like, this is my baby and I need to have it now because (laughs) the time is now. Right. So I just have this like real deep sense of urgency that I don't know if it's ambition or, my biological clock. I really don't understand. I'm mystified by it, but I just, I knew that I wasn't on the right path. And right now I feel like I am on the right path and I'm not going to go back and revise. I'm going to keep going until I get to the end because I feel like this story, the way that it's being told now is finally resonating as the story.
0: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our website, wmfapodcast.com. You can email us at hello at WMFAPodcast.com and find us on Twitter and Instagram at WMFAPodcast. Download and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Reviews are greatly appreciated. Or visit our website for more options. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier LLC.